Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode on rethinking safe haven assets has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Nicolas Aguirre, portfolio strategist in our private bank's endowments and foundations group, and Thushka Maharaj, global strategist in multi-asset solutions. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's go ahead here and jump right in. Thushka, maybe we'll start with you. Rethinking safe haven assets, obviously something that's front of mind for lots of investors across the spectrum. What was really the objective of this paper? What was the question that you were trying to answer as you guys worked on this over the past couple of months? Yeah, David, I think when we were speaking to investors, the key question was how to build resilience into portfolios. Given how late we are in the economic cycle and uncertainty that we're getting both from the political side, but also from the economic side, questions from investors have been around how to make sure our portfolios are resilient over the next economic downturn. And I think the relevance of this question became even more important after we've seen a huge proportion of bond markets trading in negative yield territory. So basically, bonds, which have been our anchor and our defensive asset for a long time, we were paid an income to hold that asset. But now with negative yielding markets, it's becoming a lot harder to just passively use bonds as an asset to build defense. One of the key themes from our LTCMAs this year, and it actually emanates from this paper, is about rethinking our 60-40 portfolio. It's not that we are replacing bonds in the 40% or the ballast within portfolios, but it's how should we be complementing this given the proportion of negative yielding bonds. So the paper goes through the traditional sources of diversification and protection like bonds, gold, currency or safe haven currencies, but we also augment this by adding in a new dimension, looking at less liquid alternative asset classes like core real estate, because we are thinking about ways to provide income to investors, but at the same time diversify. And so that's the main objective of the paper is to look outside of the traditional sources of safety and safe havens and critically analyze whether there are other assets we can look at to add ballast and resilience into portfolios. I think what's interesting is we've gone from an environment where you used to get paid for protection and now you're paying for protection, if I kind of am synthesizing what you were sharing. Nico, given this market environment broadly and kind of what Thushka described in terms of the underlying objectives of the paper that you both wrote, can you talk a little bit more about the importance of using a broader definition of safe haven assets? And you know, in particular, what are you including in this universe? And then furthermore, where are you finding the most opportunities today? Sure. So like Tushka mentioned, for the first time in modern financial history, investors have to effectively pay to add bonds to their portfolios. And this calls for a broader definition of safe havens, one that includes not only bonds, but also reserve currencies, gold, and selective alternative investments, such as core real estate and infrastructure. We believe investors should consider what they really need to be successful in navigating periods of market stress, whether that's staying solvent, meeting cash flow obligations, being nimble enough to seize opportunities, and what trade-offs they are more or less willing to make to achieve their investment objectives. 
And many will be surprised to find that real assets actually have the potential to offer real solutions to the challenges that investors are likely to face in the next 10 to 15 years. And so, you know, given that backdrop of there's still room for bonds, FX playing a larger role, core real assets being added to the mix, where are you finding the most opportunities? I mean, what within the universe of safe havens looks most attractive at the current juncture? An opportunity that stands out to us is real assets. And like you mentioned, core real estate in particular and infrastructure. We see them as potential above-the-line efficient frontier opportunities because they have stable and high-quality income streams that can help investors weather volatility or navigate periods of stress in the market. They, in other words, have the potential to offer real solutions to many of the challenges that investors may face over the next 10 to 15 years. And just anecdotally, as we travel around the country, I travel around the country meeting with clients, the real asset conversation is certainly front of mind. We're seeing a lot of people kind of adopt those into portfolios as a complement to some of the existing safe haven assets that they've had, you know, things like traditional sovereign bonds or parts of the FX world. We've talked a little bit about real assets. Let's move on and talk a little bit more about financial assets within the broader safe haven universe. Thushka, you know, historically, the U.S. dollar has been considered a pretty safe and secure asset and a place that a lot of people have looked during times of stress in an effort to play a little bit of defense. But it's unclear whether the dollar is going to maintain those more defensive properties going forward. So my first question for you is, will the dollar continue to be a safe haven asset down the road? And, you know, if the answer is perhaps not the way that it has been in the past, What other currency pairs can investors leverage to play a little bit more defense within the context of their broader portfolio? Great question, David. In terms of how we looked at the dollar, I'd say one surprising takeaway from our analysis was that, yes, the U.S. dollar has behaved as a safe haven, but most especially post-financial crisis. When we looked at a long history of the data for the DXY or the dollar trade-weighted index, we didn't find consistent safe haven properties in the US dollar over the last 30 years. In fact, it's actually a 50% chance that the dollar went up in periods of stress historically, and a 50% chance it went down. So that's pretty even odds, and I wouldn't characterize this as a traditional safe haven. It's very interesting, though, that post-financial crisis, the dollar has consistently behaved as a safe haven. So looking ahead, looking over the next economic downturn, the next 10 to 15 years, we see a few reasons for why the dollar is challenged. Now, clearly, dollar performance will depend on where that shock emanates from. So if you have a U.S. slowdown or recession caused by weakness elsewhere, weakness in EM, weakness in Europe, then yes, the dollar would do well. But if you go through a garden variety style U.S. economic recession that's caused by slowing growth, U.S. growth catching down to the rest of the world, then we would question the performance of the U.S. dollar. We would question its safe haven properties in that downturn. A few reasons for this. One, rate differentials today supportive for the U.S. dollar. But if we go into a recession, you'd expect the Fed to be cutting very aggressively and that therefore reduces the rate support for the dollar. Second reason is a valuation one. On a trade-weighted basis, the dollar is already at highs. And actually, in fact, our LTCMAs forecasts for a secular downtrend in the U.S. dollar. So from a starting point valuation perspective, we see headwinds for dollar performance. Thirdly, 
diversification out of the dollar. That's starting to happen in very small incremental steps. I'd expect that if there was a new downturn or the next economic recession in the US, that process may be accelerated. And again, that would be negative for the dollar relative to other currencies. And then finally, political question marks. Are there policy tools both on the fiscal or government side and monetary side that will artificially depress the dollar? in the next economic downturn? It's still a question for us. We don't have a conclusive answer, but it is something that, again, can weigh on dollar performance. So where else should we look to your second question? We do think currencies like the yen and the Swiss franc, which enjoy high surplus positions on their net international investment accounts, these currencies, your other traditional safe havens, will reassert their safe haven behavior in the next downturn. So the key message we place in this paper is diversification across safe haven currencies and orienting currency exposure away from the US dollar in the next downturn. Interesting. While we're on the topic of currencies, I think the first derivative, you've slide slightly to the right or the left, you know, oftentimes that leads to a conversation around adding gold to a portfolio. And so, Nico, how are we thinking about gold at the current juncture? Obviously, with interest rates so low, the quote unquote carrying cost of that asset has come down. But do you view it as being more cost effective given that real yields are hovering around the zero bound? The short answer is yes. Bonds were favored as a safe haven versus gold over the last 25 years because inflation was subdued and quantitative easing distorted bond markets. But that, like you mentioned, is changing. With monetary policy becoming less potent and rates near or below zero, the opportunity cost of holding gold is materially lower than it used to be. In fact, in some countries, the opportunity cost is lower than the cost of holding the physical bars, which is a quite powerful fact. This increases the appeal of gold as a diversifier for portfolios, and that's even before we consider some tailwinds for the metal, tailwinds that we discuss in the paper, such as the long-term decline of the U.S. dollar versus other currencies, strong consumer demand from markets such as India and China, and continued buying from central banks that see gold as a strategic investment and as a way to diversify the reserves away from the dollar. Just to add to Nico's points on the attractiveness of gold, we also look at the asymmetric return profile for various inflation outcomes. I know we spend a lot of time saying that inflation is likely to be very subdued or having the similar outcome as what we had over the last 10 years. But it's interesting to note that if you do get those tail events, either very high inflation or very low inflation, gold returns do pick up meaningfully. That's part of the attractiveness of gold as a safe haven asset over the next 10 to 15 years. This is not to say that gold does well in all scenarios. In the sort of core scenario, in the base case, where you don't have these extreme outcomes, actually you give up quite a bit of return because gold doesn't have any intrinsic long-term return profile outside of a hedge against inflation. But in these tail events, that positive convexity of owning gold or gold-related assets becomes more attractive. The other thing that we spend some time talking about in the paper is long-term correlations between risk assets and gold, between risk assets and the bond market. And it was interesting in our analysis that we see that periods where gold is not a safe haven, where it didn't have very negative correlation to equities, that's when bonds were your safe haven asset. But now that bond yields are negative in large parts of the global economy, 
the opportunity cost of holding gold has fallen, as Nico has already highlighted, but also this diversification across your safe haven assets becomes interesting because periods where gold is a negatively correlated assets with equities tends to be periods where bond markets move more positively in line with risk assets. So this diversification that you apply to your return-seeking portion of your portfolio applies equally to the risk portion or the risk-sensitive portion of your portfolio. Basically, we're saying just as you diversify your return portion, you should also be diversifying your safe haven pool of assets. So it seems like the case for gold has become more compelling here over the course of the past couple of years and thinking about, you know, broadening that definition of safe haven assets, thinking about currency pairs other than just the dollar, thinking about gold, thinking about alternative assets, particularly in the core real estate and infrastructure space. You know, Thushka, there are a lot of levers here that it sounds like investors can pull when building that more defensive part of their portfolio. And some of these assets are relatively new. So can you talk a little bit about portfolio construction and how investors should think about allocating to different safe haven assets given their needs and constraints? And maybe if you would, a little bit of extra time on how alternatives fit into this mix, given that that seems to be a growing area of focus for institutional investors. That's an interesting point. We spend a lot of time in the paper talking about our framework for choosing a safe haven asset for different types of investors. So just to summarize, three things we see as critical for survival through the next economic downturn. One, maintaining preservation of your cash flow, so basically capital preservation through the cycle. Secondly, maintaining income to meet known obligations or meet known cash flow requirements. And then finally, having liquidity in the portfolio so that you can take advantage of dislocations. So given these three sort of ingredients or the main requirements we face in the next downturn, we looked at various trade-offs for different types of safe haven assets. So we know that by definition, having safety or safe haven assets in portfolios comes with an opportunity cost. And it is our purpose or our aim to minimize that opportunity cost. So one of the things we looked at in the paper was looking at different trade-offs. For example, for investors who face large outflows, so they need to meet a lot of income needs, but they also face unexpected drawdowns, so they also need liquidity in their portfolio to meet these unexpected drawdowns, then these types of investors have to stick to traditional assets like government bonds, like high-quality securitized paper, because that provides income to some degree, but most especially is liquid and defensive and maintaining capital. So that's one trade-off. If we take the other extreme, you look at a type of investor who has low liquidity needs, but still faces income needs. So it needs to meet known obligations or known outflows. Then looking at something less traditional, like alternative assets, like core U.S real estate, which gives you that income. So you earn the income component to meet unknown obligations, but is less liquid. So you have to bear that in mind. You are giving up the liquidity in order to earn that income. Now to your second question, how to think about allocating to alternative assets, given that these are not considered your traditional safe havens. We think about that as very specific to a certain type of investor who is investing through the cycle. 
who can maintain the position in real estate despite an economic downturn. Because essentially, to earn that income, we have to pay for it through liquidity. And because government bonds are not giving us a sustainable, positive, and high coupon, we have to extend the opportunity set to look at these alternative assets. But crucially, it's not for all types of investors, and we have to be very careful about how we design and tailor the safe haven portion of portfolios. Absolutely. The liquidity component of all of this, I think, is front of mind for folks. Obviously, you know, these, again, are new assets. And so the experience that a lot of people have with them is somewhat limited. And I think that getting comfortable with the idea that you're going to invest in these assets through a cycle is really the first step to successfully implementing them as part of a diversified portfolio. So we've talked about alternatives at the high level, kind of infrastructure, core real estate. There is a lot that goes on beneath the surface. Nico, I was hoping you could talk in a little bit more detail. You know, when we talk about core real estate, when we talk about infrastructure, where are we finding value? Is it in retail or is it in industrial? Is it in contracted assets and regulated utilities or is it in more GDP sensitive assets like trade terminals and airports? You know, a little bit of color on where exactly we're finding the most opportunity within these real asset verticals, I think would be useful. Sure. So within real estate, I think it's important to know that the levels of leverage have come down significantly from where they were 10 or 15 years ago. In fact, we're now seeing leverage levels in the core space of around 30%, which means that those properties are going to be materially more resilient than they were in the past to a downturn. Furthermore, we're seeing a shift from retail to new economy segments of the real estate market. So think data centers, think logistics that support e-commerce and properties such as that. In the infrastructure space, I think it's interesting to look at less GDP-sensitive sectors such as water companies, contracted power, that can offer attractive yields in the mid-single digits and yields cash flowed that can be resistant to a downturn in the economy. So that's why we think that for long-term investors who can warehouse volatility without being to sell in a downturn, these assets make a lot of sense. They offer diversification, stable income streams, and like I mentioned before, in many ways they can be an above-the-line efficient frontier market opportunity. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for mentioning e-commerce, giving my own LTCMA paper a little bit of a shout out. But I think you've identified a number of key trends that people can take advantage of within these alternative asset classes. Maybe one or two more questions to just tie it all together. If you're a new investor in this space, how do you see clients funding allocations to core real assets, to infrastructure? And do you worry that growing investor interest may have a negative impact on returns at some point in the future? So let me start with the first question. How are people funding these allocations? Investments such as real assets can potentially have many of the features that have historically made bonds appealing as a safe haven. So think low correlation, predictable cash flows, and diversification. That is why we're seeing investors complement their fixed income allocations with positions in infrastructure in core real estate. Now, I want to underscore something that Tushka mentioned earlier, which is that we're not advocating for discarding bonds as a defensive or safe haven asset. All we're saying is that investors would do well to consider a broader definition, which includes real assets, as incremental sources of cash flow and diversification. Now, on to your second point about growing investor demand and where that represents a risk, I think it's important to put things in context. Let's look at infrastructure, for example. 
Infrastructure as an asset class is still very much in its early days in many parts of the world, and even in the U.S. In fact, OECD estimates that between now and 2030, we're going to need between three and six trillion dollars, yes, trillion dollars, to meet the infrastructure needs we have. So there's ample room to grow. And in the meantime, the incremental demand is going to be a tailwind for the owners of these assets because it's going to result in firmer bids and it's also going to support the valuations of the cash flow streams. So it sounds like this is an asset class that will face some bumps, but in general, the wind seems to be at its back. And I think, you know, perhaps the most important point that you made is that the idea here isn't to get rid of your bonds, right? The idea here is to take off the blinders, if you will, and appreciate a wider set of investment opportunities, a wider set of assets that can help people play defense in an economic cycle, which is becoming increasingly mature. And when building that basket of safe havens, I think it's important for folks to look at the paper and look at the framework that Tushka explained before, which talks about how investors can balance income needs, with liquidity needs to build a basket that works for them. Yeah, I mean, having a framework is always important. You would never cook a meal for the first time without a set of instructions. And I think the same can be said for broadening out one's definition of safe haven assets and successfully implementing them in portfolios. So with all that said, thank you both for the conversation today. I know I really enjoyed it. And most importantly, thank you for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on October 31st, 2019. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature, and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, 
and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355E. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients, only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514383280, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019 J.P. Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved.